0: Some of the toughest questions you guys have ever asked me today on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. <laughs> Everybody, and welcome once again to Bible Study Podcast.org. Today is Wednesday, June the 11th of 2008, and I'm your host, Toby Logsden. Now, in previous months, I know, up until last month anyway, we have always only done questions and answers on the second Wednesday of every month, but now I'm trying to give it to you guys the first and second Wednesday of every month. So welcome to our second Q&A lesson of the month, and hopefully you guys listened to last week's lesson as well, because we addressed some really good questions last week too that I don't want you guys to miss. So hope you guys are having a great week, and hope everything's going well for all of you. I wanted to let you guys know, just one real quick announcement before we get started here, that our next series that we're going to be doing for apologetics is going to be called The Essentials. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through each one of the essential Christian doctrines one by one, trying to figure out why it's essential, how it comes into play, and what groups, maybe uh, some cults or other religions which deny the essentials of Christianity. And so this is really going to be a series in which, we define what Christianity is, and I hope that's something that you guys are excited about. Uh, It's something that I have a passion for, and uh, one question I think a lot of us have probably asked is, what is necessary for salvation? Which which things in the Bible are necessary for salvation? So that's something that we're going to be talking about uh, in the coming weeks, and that series, again, is going to be called The Essentials, so definitely be on the lookout for that. And again, I want to thank those of you who have been praying for Brian and me as we're moving forward with this church planning thing. Uh, There's a lot more news to come, I'm sure, uh, and I'll keep you guys up to speed as developments come. So anyway, I want to welcome Christina, my wife, to our podcast today. She's going to be my designated reader once again.
1: I sure hope you ate your Wheaties to get ready for this lesson.
0: No, no Wheaties exactly, but I have done my research, and so hopefully that'll be sufficient uh, for these questions. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, these are some of the toughest questions you guys have ever asked me, but uh, I don't elude questions. I don't uh, edit out the questions that I don't want to answer, that I, or that I don't know how to answer. Uh, it just motivates me to do more research. So hopefully you guys uh, are ready for this, because these are some tough questions. Anyway, Christina, what do we have for our first question?
1: Okay, our first question today comes from Stephen, and Stephen writes, I am a medical student in my third year, and I have been delighted to hear the biblical defense on my stance against abortion. Thank you for that. I have a question somewhat along this line, and it is, A three-month pregnant patient presents and is in need of an emergency abortion. If she refuses, she and the baby will die. I am totally against abortion, but same as my profession and for conservation of life. This is a tough scenario. Part of me is totally against abortion, and the second part is preservation of life. If we do nothing, we lose both. If we perform the abortion, the woman lives. What should be my inspiration and support I need to make the decision through the Bible? Can you guide me to certain verses that could help in such a scenario?
0: Well, I really appreciate that question, Stephen, uh, particularly because I've made it, I think, abundantly clear that I'm completely pro-life, and I hold the position that abortion is both unethical and unjustifiable. And last year, as uh, as you probably realize, I took several questions for these Q&A lessons on abortion, and I did some lessons on abortion, and I, I tried to systematically answer every single possible objection to the pro-life position and to logically refute every single uh, possible pro-choice position. So uh this, however, is one question or, or scenario that I, I didn't actually answer. And the reason I didn't address this type of situation is because from everything that I've read and all the research that I've done, it's generally agreed that this type of situation is actually just a smokescreen in general. That's what former United States Surgeon General Dr. C. Everett Koop called it anyway. And uh, Planned Parenthood seemed to agree with that, although in, in not so many words. One of their doctors, Dr. Alan Guttmacher, I think that's how you'd pronounce that, wrote that, quote, Today it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia, and if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save, life. End quote. And another physician by the name of Dr. Landrum Shettles, S-H-E-T-T-L-E-S, if you want to do a search for his book, he wrote that uh, this scenario would constitute less than 1% of all abortion procedures. So that's one reason uh, that I really didn't address this question last year when I was doing the abortion series. And of course, uh, laws and ethical principles should be based on the norm rather than the exception. And this seems to really be a, a pretty rare exception. Uh, And there's really not any biblical support one way or the other, because this type of thing, we don't have any record of this type of thing happening anywhere in scripture. Uh, But we can still use reason and use the Christian worldview uh, with reason to come up with an answer. So, with all that being said, I would argue that it's morally better to save one life—that uh, is, that of the mother—than to lose two lives, and that is the the mother and the child. And there are indeed rare cases of what you would call ectopic pregnancies, which are pregnancies in which the the child or the the fetus is positioned and developing outside of the uterus. Uh, in this situation, the child has you know basically no hope for survival and. Uh, It'll it'll cause the mother to die, if the child is not aborted. And in fact, between 40 and 50 women die of ectopic pregnancies every year in the United States. So between 40 and 50 women, uh, you know, you don't want to see 40 or 50 women die, but it is a, a pretty small percentage, and so this is a a pretty rare occurrence. But It does happen. Anyway, in cases like these, if the child is not aborted early on in the pregnancy, both the mother and child uh, will die. So... If it's possible to save one life, then by all means, that's the road that should be taken. Uh, if this isn't dealt with early on in the pregnancy, the the tables are actually uh, turned or can be turned. It becomes uh, sometimes possible to save the child, but then too late to save the mother. And if that's the case, then once again, if, if one life can be saved, then that would be the morally best option, um, and there are other uh, possible situations or scenarios in which a mother has a medical condition which if uh, if she undergoes treatment, could result in the death of the baby in the womb. For example, you know, if if a woman has cancer and has to undergo radiation treatment, it very likely could result in either the death or the disfigurement or uh, mental incapacity of the child. And you know, this is this is just a tough situation all around. But uh, but in such a case, I would say that every effort should be made to save both lives, and that's usually the case. It's usually possible to, to save both lives. Um, but treating the mother's condition shouldn't be neglected just for the sake of the child unless it's possible to, uh, to postpone treatment for the mother's sickness or, or disease or ailment or whatever it is. And it may also be possible to reduce the dosage of the mother's treatment at least uh, for a while until the child reaches the point of viability where you know they can maybe take the baby out at, at six or, or seven months and, and use today's technology. To, uh, to keep the baby alive, to sustain the life of the baby, and then put the mother into treatment for her disease. But I can't emphasize enough that the effort should be made uh, to save both the, the mother and the child. If it's possible, and and neither should be entirely neglected, so uh, I, I hope this answers your question, Stephen. And I thank you for sending that in. And, and actually, last year I wrote a little booklet that uh, that I gave out called "A Christian Perspective on Abortion," and I'd like to send you a copy of that booklet if you'll contact me with an address to send it to. But uh, God bless you, Stephen. Thank you for that question. That's a really good question, and uh, hopefully that helps. But anyway, Christina, what do we have for our next question?
1: Okay, our next question today comes from Adam. Adam writes, I had a quick question about pastors and divorce. My fiancé and I found a great church we really like. It's a Calvary Chapel denomination. After having the pastor over for dinner, I discovered this was his second marriage. His interpretation of Scripture is that Paul was talking about having more than one wife at the same time, not being divorced. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. I just wanted your input on what the passage is really saying.
0: Well, Adam, uh, thank you for the question, and some of you may realize that I actually do have a little bit of a history with uh, the Calvary Chapel movement, and um, actually, I, re- I refer to it as a movement out of respect for them, since they themselves will deny that they're actually a, a literal denomination. They, they won't refer to themselves as a denomination, but, but either way, whatever you want to call them, I've got a little bit of a history with Calvary Chapel churches. Uh, when I lived in Las Vegas, I attended the Calvary Chapel Church in Spring Valley, and the pastor there was a an absolutely fantastic Bible expositor. This is one of the, the best Bible teachers I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, I could sit for for hours and, and listen to Pastor John Michaels. I could listen to him for hours on end if I had the chance. And that's exactly why the church there is so big. It's because Pastor John is a great Bible teacher. However, uh, I've also been part of uh, other Calvary Chapel churches, which I didn't have so many good things to say about. Um I've, I've seen pastors abuse their positions because by the Calvary chapel model of leadership, there is no real accountability for the pastor. Um, the pastor's in charge and, and he calls the shots and has the right to select the elders of the church by himself and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, for someone like Pastor John Michaels in Las Vegas, that doesn't present a problem because he uh, he's humble enough to recognize areas in which he needs help and accountability. However, for the pastor who um, whose heart maybe isn't necessarily in the right place, the Calvary Chapel model of leadership opens the door to uh, a plethora of problems and And for the record, I believe that the Bible teaches a plurality of leaders or elders, as the model that churches are to incorporate for the sake of accountability, if nothing else. But that's another topic entirely. But anyway, uh, on to your question. I, I once heard it said that interpreting scripture can be like holding a prisoner of war. You know, if you do the right things, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And that's dangerous, because I, I think it's absolutely true. The fact is that every position that we hold, every theological or interpretation position that we hold... Uh, has to take into account or take into consideration every other verse in Scripture. Why? Because the Bible never contradicts itself. So anytime I hear someone say, my interpretation of this verse is, uh, I become a little bit weary. I, I listen closely and, and carefully, and, and that's because each book, each chapter, each passage, each verse, and each word in Scripture has only one objectively true meaning, and and we're not really free to interpret it however we wish or however best suits our life situation. So anyone who says, uh, I interpret this passage to say this, I'm going to be paying pretty close attention to what they say. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to believe them or, or follow along. It just means I'm listening. But anyway, with that being said, let's look at the verse in question. And that's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The verse says, An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and that's the part in question, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And then we go on to the next verse, which has some more qualifications. But anyway, if we interpreted this verse, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, of 1 uh, Timothy, if we interpreted this word for word, it would actually say that the overseer must be a one-woman man. And some people have uh, have interpreted this verse to mean that a pastor can never have been divorced and remarried. And, uh, you know, this is really a, a pretty tough question to answer just on, on this one verse. I mean, does it mean that an overseer must currently be married only to one woman? Or does it mean that he can only have uh, been married to one woman in his entire lifetime? Or, you know, what does it mean? Well, you know, if you look at these other attributes or these other qualifications, you you can tell that the issue at hand is really the pastor's character. And that's what uh, what this passage in which the qualifications of a pastor or an overseer are discussed. That's what this this whole passage is about. His ability to properly love others and to lovingly keep his own house in order. You see, if a if a pastor or an overseer uh, can't resolve conflicts in his own home, then how can he serve as a model for other people or other men to peacefully resolve conflicts? Uh, divorce represents a failure in the home and a failure. To reconcile, And verse 4 tells us that the pastor must be able to manage his own household well. And uh, then he notes in verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Seems like a, a pretty good argument, a pretty good reason for the pastor or overseer to be uh, one woman man. But uh, to clear this up a little bit, let's let's go ahead and take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, and see if this can help us clear things up a little. Here we find Paul referring to the list of widows that the church is to be providing for. And Paul writes, quote, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. So, Here is a a widow, a a woman, whose husband has has died. And by definition, you know, a, a widow doesn't have a husband. But again, the Greek here, if we read it word for word, would say one man, woman. So note the similarity in how the verses are structured. But also note... The difference. The difference, of course, is the tense of the verb. Uh, in the qualifications for an overseer or, or pastor, the tense indicates a current position and makes no implications of the past. But in the qualifications for a widow, uh, or, who, or widows who qualify for this list of widows to be cared for by the church, uh, we find that the tense indicates an action, that is, being a one-man-woman, which leads up to and continues into the present. So, all things considered, then, if a pastor or an overseer is currently the type of man who only has eyes for his wife and who isn't known as a womanizer, uh, you know, he would seem to fit this qualification. But we do have to recognize that this isn't necessarily... A black and white issue, even though I want everything to be a black and white issue because I like formulas, but anyway uh there's certainly some gray here you know there's a, there's a lot of gray here, and that's what we're asked to do we're asked to determine uh, whether the pastor only has eyes for his wife. Or maybe we've noticed that he's tenderly hugging all the women in the church a little longer and more affectionately than he needs to be when he greets them. Uh, so if he's currently a one-woman type of guy, regardless of his past, this verse seems to indicate that, uh, that he fits the criteria that Paul presents here. So, you know, I would say that if he is in love with his wife, if he is a one-woman type of guy, then uh, he seems to fit with uh, Paul's criteria here so anyway thank you for the question Adam that's a really tough question and that's one I really had to struggle with so God bless you and thank you for sending that in Christina what's our last question for the day
1: okay our final question today comes from Matthew and Matthew writes my question is in regards to the atrocities in the Old Testament I was recently in a conversation with someone about the beheadings by fundamental Islamic followers, and a comment was made about how God commanded the killings of many people in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. They also mentioned the Israeli armies destroying other nations by God's command. I know that Jesus was the new covenant replacing the old, and that the Old Testament laws applied to the people of the nation of Israel only, and not the Gentiles. I still have a hard time with these ethical issues and cannot seem to quell the flames of those who say the logical outworkings of Islam and biblical theism, Old Testament, both ordain killing in the name of God. I appreciate your insight and help. Please help me on this one.
0: Man, maybe I uh maybe I should have eaten my Wheaties, but uh <laughs> thank you for the, the question, Matthew. This is actually the same question that uh I've received a few times in the past couple of weeks, actually, so I wanted to be sure to address this one. And uh I know that it's not an easy question to answer, in fact, you know, this issue is so difficult for some people to find a comprehensive answer to that they've strayed from Christian doctrine to find an answer. And if you are dialoguing with somebody who isn't saved, one of the things we've been talking about in, uh, in our Roman study the past couple of weeks is that the natural man, the unregenerate man, or the, the person who isn't saved, can't make sense of spiritual matters. Uh, so, this might not even make sense to them uh, because they just don 't recognize the authority of God. but you know when I say that some people have uh, have strayed from Christian doctrine to find an answer i 'm actually specifically referring to one of my undergraduate college professors who read stuff like this and and then asserted that there were uh, that there must be multiple gods, and that the one who is giving the orders for the Israelites to kill the the Canaanite men, women, and children, for example, is clearly a different God from the God of the New Testament. Well, if you ask me, that's, that's a bunch of nonsense. There's only one God, and his character is always and eternally consistent. So there are actually a couple different issues that this question boils down to, and you need to break it down like this, especially for the unbeliever. Uh, first of all, does God have the right to take a life? And secondly, how do we know when he's commanding somebody to uh, to be his means of taking a life, if he is indeed entitled to take life? So, let's let's break this down. Okay, does God have the right to take life? Well, the Bible affirms that he does. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, we read that God says, quote, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So the principle being taught here then is that only the the person who owns life has the right to take it, so our lives aren 't our own because we didn't give ourselves life. Uh, God gave us life, He created life, and therefore all life and all things belong to him and him alone, since he is the cause of all effects. Um, you know can you cut down the neighbor's shrubs? Well, no, uh, what if those shrubs are really ugly? Well, no, they still belong to your neighbor, and you can probably guarantee that you'll be taken to court and you'll lose if you try to destroy something of his that doesn't belong to you. If you want to cut your own shrubs down, that's fine if they belong to you. But now, uh, I know that somebody's going to hear this answer, and they're going to say, okay, well, then what if there was an evil being who made life and destroyed it just for fun? Did he have the right to do that just because he made the life that he ended? And they'll say, well, of course, that's morally wrong. And, you know, this is really a ridiculous objection. Uh, but when I was looking for objections uh, for this argument, this is what I found. But, you know, our our code of morality and ethical principles flows from God's nature, and it's impossible for God to do evil. He's not just some uh, evil being who made life and destroys it just for fun. You know, the Bible never says that God destroys life just for fun. Uh, the moral code isn't above or below God. It comes from God. It flows from his nature. So, okay. So given that, we know that God has the right to take life because he created life and he owns life. So what's the difference between the Israelites killing on God's behalf and other religions killing in the name of God? Or what about the Crusades? You know, they claim to be Christians who were killing in the name of God as well. Were they justified? Well, you know, this is where we're discussing, you know, how we know when God has asked a person to be his means of, uh, of carrying out his wrath. Well, the three Israelite leaders whom God spoke through and by doing so commanded the Israelites to kill were Moses, uh, Joshua, and Samuel. Well, so how did the Israelites know with any degree of certainty that the orders that the, that these leaders were given were from God and not just from Moses, Joshua, or Samuel? Well, it's because their, their words, their commands were validated by miracles. Moses especially performed, you know, dozens of miracles to prove that his message was from God and not just from himself. Uh, You know, uh, Joshua was able to, to cross the river. So, you know, miracles are the means by which God's word and by which God's commands are authenticated. And that's something that no other religion in the world can say that they have. You know, they may say that they've been commanded to kill in the name of God or whatever the name of their God is, but where are the miracles to validate that command? I'm talking about miracles that are performed right out in open for everyone to see, just like uh, fire coming down from heaven, you know, when Elijah called down fire from heaven. You know, no other world religion can say that they've had their message uh, validated by miracles, and for that reason they don 't have the right to carry out a command by their false gods to kill so matthew that's a that 's a great question, and i 'm sure that 's one that several people who are listening have struggled with as well so I hope this helps and for any of these questions, if you guys need clarification, uh, you know you can email me anytime at cleanslate Ministries at hotmailcom but uh, God bless you, Matthew, thank you for sending that question, and I hope that helps. And that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you guys for sending your questions in, and thank you, Christina, for reading. And uh, I will see you guys next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep going closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org, a ministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a non-profit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right hand side you can make a tax-deductible donation from there by doing so you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who just like yourself desire to find answers and meaning in scripture we thank you for listening today and we pray that the lord blesses you and draws you closer to him keep growing closer to jesus